Welcome back to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. This past Sunday here at Grace Life, Pastor Frank continued his series, Live Free, A Study of Galatians, with his message titled, Are You a Son or a Slave? If you're not already caught up on the series, I would suggest you go back to episode two and start from the beginning. Okay, here's Pastor Frank. Good morning, my friends. I'm really, really glad you're here today to dig deep into this next chapter, Galatians chapter four. One of the most powerful but poignant passages in the New Testament. I found myself as I read it and reread it and poured over it, stopping on multiple occasion to just let the tears flow. This is really, really special. Before we turn there, though, I want to focus your attention on the truths contained in the book of Colossians, which theme is basically the supremacy of Jesus. Set your mind, if you would, on the glory of the words that the Holy Spirit communicates to us in that book. In Colossians 1.16, he says, by him, Jesus, all things were created. All things were created for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things consist. It is in him that you can find all, you're going to see the pattern, <laughs> all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And therefore, chapter 2, verse 10, you're complete in him. He is everything to you, and he is in you. That's why Ephesians 1.3 says, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. Therefore, in verse 16, Paul says, do not let anyone judge you or beguile you. Home in on that word beguile. It's an ugly word for an ugly behavior. It means to charm or entice or seduce. The word is used in the New Testament for anyone that would seek to lead us away from Jesus to anything other than Jesus. Especially leading us back to elementary principles, the laws, the rules, the regulations. Don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle that. Those things do absolutely nothing for us other than condemn us if we don't do very well or instill pride in us if there's some semblance of success. You can't win with the law. In verse 23, he's, these elementary things are nothing but a shadow. They're, they're a show of wisdom. In other words, when you do all those little rules and regulations, you really look good before other people. But if you think about it, there's no life in a shadow. I don't want a shadow of Janet. I want the real thing. One writer said this, one of the great tragedies of legalism, i.e. religion, is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in actuality is a manifestation that we are no more than spiritual babies in our understanding of the things of God. Let me say that again. One of the great tragedies of legalism or religion is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity. Look at all we're doing. When in actuality is a manifestation that we are no more than spiritual babies in our understanding of the things of God. We think we can get life out of doing things. When life is only available in he who is life. Another writer put it this way. Followers of, followers of the law can be so diligent and so sincere. But they really don't know what it is they're sincere and diligent about. They are like the pilot who announced to the passengers on his plane, ladies and gentlemen, we're having some technical issues and our navigator has been unable to determine our position and basically we've been flying rather aimlessly for about an hour. That's the bad news. The good news though is that we're making really good time. <laughs> it's utterly ridiculous. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been literally screaming in this book. Like a prosecuting attorney, he's backed his defendants, the Galatians, into a corner that they can't get out of. And that's a wonderful thing for them. 
because he's seeking to return them to their senses. And the evidence that he is presenting is nothing short of overwhelming. And I want to go through it real quickly. Argument number one. You Galatians experienced God by faith. And that was apart from the works of the law. Argument number two. Your experience was biblical. And Paul quoted six passages from the Old Testament to affirm that men are saved by faith, not by law. Argument number three was the supremacy of faith. Man's only responsibility is to trust what God has done on our behalf. Argument number four, the law is therefore inferior. Under the law, man is required to do and to do perfectly. And that puts a curse on all of us because none of us can keep the law. So argument number six, he put forth the purpose of the law. It was supposed to function like a mirror and point out all our defects. It was designed to reveal to us, to manifest us, to scream at us that we're guilty and we're dead and our greatest need is to find life. And therefore, argument number seven was the priority of being a child of God because the law would drive us to Jesus and in Jesus we would find forgiveness and we would find life and by faith we would become children of God. And because we're children, we're also heirs. Heirs of all things. That brings us to Galatians chapter four. And we're gonna break this chapter down really simply. There's only gonna be two points. Continuing as a prosecuting attorney, if you will, in verses one through seven, Paul's gonna offer his summation. He's given his seven arguments, and now he wraps it all up in a package. And then from verses 8 through 20, he's going to appeal for a favorable verdict. He's going to call for Galatians to make a decision once and for all to leave the law and get back to Jesus. As I noted earlier, my friends, this is going to be pretty powerful. And at the same time, so very, very poignant. Let's pray. Father, um... You stunned me this week with the choice of language that your Holy Spirit presented on the written page. I confess to you, Father, that I can't teach anybody these truths. I can present them, but only your Spirit can knit them on the heart. And so we commit our time to your Holy Spirit, that he would be functioning the way you sent him to do that he would be our very own personal teacher to open our eyes to what we cannot see apart from his work in our lives. May we revel in the glory as you do so. In Jesus' name. Let's say it. You know, in this instance, it's very unfortunate to have the chapter verse divisions. You know, when you see chapter four, you think we're getting in a new thought, but we're not. We really need to remove those and go back to chapter three and and follow the flow of Paul's mind. In chapter three, he finished by saying, you are all sons of God by faith in Christ. And as sons, you are heirs of the promise, which is far better than the law. Now in verses one through seven, he's gonna elaborate on and present three great glories for us in terms of what it means to be an heir. Glory number one. Verses one through five. Now I say, we can stop there. Paul is in essence saying, let me elaborate a little bit on what it means to be an heir. I want to make sure you get this. And so I'm going to present to you how it is in the natural realm of mankind. Verse one. As long as the heir, and we can stop right there. We're talking about an heir. And he is a legitimate heir. The fact is the inheritance of his father belongs to him. It's the way it is. However, look at verse one says, as long as he's a child, I'm going to circle that word. Greek language has several different words for child. This is very important. It's the word nepios. It means a little kid. As long as this heir is a little kid, he is no different, verse one, than a slave in the household. He has no control, he has no authority, he has no access to inheritance, he has no freedom. 
Verse 2. He's under guardians, managers. Back to chapter 3. Disciplinarians. Until, just until, his father determines the date at which point he will be declared an adult with the full status, authority, and privilege of an adult. This is like we would do in Roman Catholicism at age 13 when you get confirmed. This is like what would happen in the Judaism where at age 13 you become bar mitzvah, become a son of the law. Only in this instance, it's not an age, it's a date set by the father. The father looked at his boy and said, okay, he is of age. He is of maturity. He can be responsible to understand and appropriate who he is and whose he is. And at that point, the child clothes come off and the adult clothes will be put on. We looked at this last week. Remember, we called it the toga virilis, a ceremony in the Roman Empire when the father determined that his son was now a man. Look at verse 3. In the same way. That means in the spiritual realm, it's the same way it was in the natural realm. We, while we were little kids, look at the verse says, we were under the guardianship of elementary principles. Interesting word, stoikeion. It means to rank or to put in order. It would be a reference to rules and regulations. In other words, the law was our guide. The law was our guardian. The law was our authority. We had no authority under the law, no freedom under the law, and no access to the inheritance. Who would this refer to? My friends, it refers to the entire world of humanity. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam plunged the whole world into the economy of law. He ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. And man now lives in an economy that heralds to him the right thing to do in order to make himself right and the wrong thing to do in order to not make himself wrong. Now, this would especially include the Jews. They had a special privilege in terms of the knowledge of the law, didn't they? They were given the law of Moses, the magnified law, the revealed law, a special revelation of God through Moses on Sinai to make clear to them the absolute holiness of, that the law demanded. The law of Moses made clear to them that they couldn't keep the law. The law made clear to them that they stood guilty and condemned before God. The law made clear to them that they were in desperate need of a blood sacrifice to redeem them from the curse of the law. And so the guardianship of the law, which kept us locked up as little kids with no access to inheritance, no access to experience, no access to freedom, was certainly a reference to the Jews under that very special law of Moses. But my friends, we need to understand it would also include the entire realm of humanity. The goyim. If you're not a Jew, that's what you are if you're here today. You're a part of the nations. You're the part of the Gentile world. That's why Romans 2 says this. Listen to the language. When Gentiles who do not have the law, i.e. of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that they have the law, i.e. of Adam, written in their hearts. That's why Romans 3 says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, look at the language, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And so Paul's point needs to be hammered to all of us. The entire world of mankind is under the law. Whether it's revealed to them what it's like or not by the law of Moses. We all live under a system of meriting our own righteousness independent of God. And I want you to look at what Paul says about this law. He says it holds us in bondage. There's no way to escape from it. We're all under its guardianship. And it locks us up as little kids so that we're unable to experience any type of inheritance or any type of freedom. And this is true anytime. Anyone seeks to achieve righteousness in life through elementary principles, human works. I want you to note the key words of verse 3. 
If you're under the law, you're like a little kid. And as a little kid, you have no understanding of the things of God. So that means legalists, religionists are nothing but spiritual babies. And as you pursue righteousness by the law, you will remain a baby. But it's not the end of the story. The Redeemer came. And anyone who puts their faith in the Redeemer has an incredible change that has taken place in their lives. Look at Paul's language. We were little kids. What's the hint? Own this one. It's very important in a minute. In Christ, you're not a little kid anymore. When you were a little kid, you were locked under the bondage of the law. But you're not a little kid anymore. Law has no authority over you anymore. The law can't keep you from experiencing God. The law can't keep you from having your inheritance possessed. It's wonderful. Something happened. Look at verse 4. This glorious word of intervention by God into our dilemma. The very first word of verse 4. But, don't you love that? There's more to the story. When God's involved, your story doesn't end with bondage. When God's involved, you don't remain a little kid in the things of God. What does he say? He says, when the fullness of time came, the father, just like in the Roman world, the father set the time when we become adults. In the same way God set the time when we could come out of the law and become adults. What was that time? He called it the fullness of time. I would suggest to you it was the time of the Roman Empire. Three main reasons. Number one, courtesy of Alexander the Great, the entire Roman Empire spoke one common language, Greek. So when the gospel would be delivered, all men could share it with each other. We'd have no language barriers. Isn't that cool? You try to go to another country today, you got to go to a language school first. Not when Jesus came. One common language. Two, there was something called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That iron fist of Rome made peace throughout the then known world. And the Romans, thirdly, built roads all over the empire. And so as men came to Christ, they could become witnesses in a nation of peace, traveling on roads the Romans built to deliver in a common language the glory of the finished work of Christ. And it was at this perfect time, look at the language, that he sent forth his son, fully God, born of a woman, fully man. So he could be born under the law, so he could lead us out and redeem us from under the law. So that, verse five, here it comes, that we might achieve, is that what it says? We might receive. The adoption as sons. Please pay close attention here because this is huge. Adoption does not mean in the Bible what it means in our culture. In our culture, parents follow the regulation of law to bring a child that is not their birth child into their family to raise as their own. The term adoption as sons does not refer to how we got into the family of God. How did we get into the family of God, by the way? We got birthed into it. John 3, right? We were born again, born by the Spirit. But when we got into God's family, birthed into it, God is telling us through the Holy Spirit here in Galatians that we also got adopted as sons. And that is a compound word, which literally means placed as sons. So we got into the family, how? By being born again. But where are we in the family? We have been placed as adult sons. 
You see the difference? Our Heavenly Father is determined that the moment we receive Jesus by faith, we were placed into the family as adult children with all the rights and privileges of an adult children, with complete freedom from our former guardian, the law, and total access to our inheritance. Glory number one. If you're in Christ right now, you stand by faith as an adult child in the family of God. God did not purchase your redemption so that he would have some servants to order around. It's not who you are. It's what you do. You serve God, but it's not who you are. You're his child. God did not purchase your redemption so that he would have a servant. He purchased your redemption so he could have a child to share in the inheritance of his glory. He purchased your redemption so that he could share his life and love with you. Remember the prodigal with his little prepared speech? You do know he's not the only one that says this speech, don't you? Father, I'm not worthy to be your child. You ever said that? Father, I've sinned too greatly to be your child. You ever said that? I struggle sometimes with still saying it. And what did the father do? He wouldn't let him get the words out of his mouth. He said, never get that stinking thinking out of your head. You will never be my servant. You are my son. Hallelujah. And he gave him the robe the full standing of adulthood. And he gave him the ring, total access to the family fortune. And that, my friends, is you and it is me. It's just one glory. There's more. Glory number two, verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now take your pen, please, and circle that word, sent forth means to send on a mission. Do you realize that? The Holy Spirit is on a mission in your life. To do what? Verse 6, he sent his spirit into our hearts saying. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. It says crying. Circle that word crying if you would. It is the Greek word kradzo. It means to exclaim in wonder. It means to cry out. It's a word of passion. It's a word of emotion. It literally means to scream. To be so excited, you shriek. Like a bunch of little girls when they see each other on the beginning of the school day. You know, the way Janet greets me when I come home. <laughs> My friends, can you capture the heart of this revelation from God? An unbelievable, wondrous, incredible event that has never before been heard in the history of the universe has occurred. And the Holy Spirit is on a mission to come deep into our hearts, to scream and to shriek into our hearts that the living, omnipotent, holy, sovereign creator, God of the universe, has become your papa. And to make sure we see it, to make sure the glory leaps off the page into our hearts and minds, he has put an Aramaic word instead of a Greek word. I know. I did that all week too. God's your appa. A little Aramaic kid, when he's here with daddy, would go up, 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 much like we would go da, da. I tried and tried all week. I really did. I can't do it. There are no words. There, there are, the words that we could come up with are just not good enough. So the Holy Spirit led me to Romans chapter 8. And I want you to look at the language very closely. 
You've not received a spirit of slavery. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons. Wait a minute, there's the same phrase. There's the same phrase. The Holy Spirit didn't make you a slave or a servant. He made you an adult son. Same language, same phrase, different outcome, different purpose. What is that? By which we cry out. Same word, kradzo. To exclaim, to shriek, to scream. Did you see it? I'm going to try to help you see it. When you received Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came into your heart, shrieking, crying out with wonder. Because it's too unbelievable and it's too good to be true. God is your Abba. And so as it shrieked and screamed into us, the only thing that can possibly happen is now it has to be shrieked and screamed out of us. Back to him. Stunned by this incredible glory, there are no words, only the words that he's placed into our hearts. Stunned. All we can say is Abba, Papa. Because finally, finally, my friends, we have in Christ that which we longed for, for so very long. As little kids in a fallen world, we long for someone who would love us completely just for who we are. We long for someone who would be so very proud of us just because we're his. We long for someone who would be kind and gentle with us, who understood us, who actually wanted to spend time with us who longs to make us feel important in his eyes, who picks us up when we fall and then treats us like we never fell in the first place. Glory number two is that God is our Abba and we could stop there today and that would be enough for my heart. It would be enough for those of us whose father was so very hard on us. Are you here today? It would be so very easy for us to stop right here for those of us who didn't have a father. And those of us especially who had a hideous distortion of what a father is. But the Holy Spirit says no to that thought. That's not good enough. There's more with God. There's always more. So glory number three, verse seven. You're no longer a slave or a servant, you're a son, and if you're a son, then you're an heir through dia, very important word, by means of God. Paul continues to drive it home to our hearts. You didn't accomplish any of this. God did it all for you. He made you his adult son. He made you his heir. You have complete access to a father because he wanted it that way. When it comes to things of God, there's no more protocol. There's no more ritual, no more formula, just intimacy. Couldn't help but think of little John John Kennedy. Remember those pictures in the Oval Office with dignitaries and there's little John John playing under the desk? Or when there was a a formal ceremony and, and little John John's between his dad's legs with all these foreign dignitaries. Juan Carlos Ortiz said it so well. Save your protocol for the president of the United States. There is no protocol with God your father. And so the Romans 8, 16, it continues. It says the Holy Spirit testifies. Look at the language with our spirits. This is very important. We have a part to play in this. You know what it is? 
to agree with what God says and claim it as our own. When he says you're a child of his, what do you do? Yes, sir, I believe it. I may not feel it, but I believe it. And because I'm a child, I'm an heir. I'm actually a fellow heir with Jesus. All that Jesus has, I have. That's why 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, he has made you rich. Three great glories. We got placed as adult sons, free from the law, with free access to our inheritance. We got the Holy Spirit screaming into our hearts that God is Papa. And as Papa and as sons, we are heirs of God himself. Glory, glory, glory. Now, having presented his overwhelming evidence, and in summation, having stressed the glory of faith in the good news of Jesus' finished work, Paul now, secondly, appeals for a verdict. He calls for a decision. You know, the decision he calls for with the Galatians is really a call on our lives, too. What are you going to do with what you've seen? And let's be honest, beginning in verse 8, I want to tell you this, there's going to be a major shift in the tenor of this passage. I've said this throughout. Up to this point, Paul has functioned much like a prosecuting attorney. He has been harsh. You non-thinking Galatians. He has been critical. He has been strong. He has been angry. Remember what we said a few weeks ago about anger. Very often we have a superficial view of anger. Meaning that because anger is the most visible thing to our eyes and the anger can be so intense, that's all we see. But underneath the surface, behind the anger, there's very often hurt. And underneath the surface, behind the anger, there's very often fear. And behind both hurt and fear, there is very often love. And I would suggest to you that's exactly what's going on in Galatians with Paul's anger. I would suggest to you that he's afraid for his dear friends that they're being seduced by charmers and led away from Jesus back to the law where there's no life. And I would suggest that he's hurt because he sees them so easily turn away from Jesus and because the cause of Christ is being hindered. And I would suggest to you that in his expression of anger, he was manifesting his great love. He was delivering to them the faithful wounds of a friend. And what I'm going to share with you is this may be the most intimate expression of Paul's heart in the entire New Testament. It's our privilege to see it. Look at verses 8 through 11. You didn't know God before. You were slaves to false gods. As Gentiles, you, you followed all those, those elementary things. I mean, you bowed down before idols and you, and you offered incense and you did all these things. You, you'd walk a hundred yards on your knees and, and all this stuff. They didn't bring you life. And you came to know God. And God came to know you as his sons. You found everything in him. How can you go back to elementary things? You're going to go back to Jewish laws now and, and just give up the Gentile laws? I mean, what do you think? You think those rituals and observances will be any better than the ones you had as Gentiles? It's just stuff. I mean, to have God and go back to law, that's like a PhD going back to kindergarten. It's like a CEO going back to the assembly line. Bob George, in his book, Class of Christianity, gave this incredible illustration. He said, you know, you're driving down the road and you look up and you see a skid row bum eating out of a garbage can. And compassion wells up in your heart. So you pull him over and coax him into your car. You take him to the best buffet in town. Prime rib. Lobster. Baked ham. Roasted chicken. Getting hungry? Not yet. Dozens and dozens of incredibly delicious side orders. And a dessert table to die for. The bum takes it all in with amazement. He's awed by what he sees. He's hesitant. 
So you tell him, go ahead, man. You can have whatever you want. You can have as much as you want. And the bum looks you in the eye and says, can I have some garbage? Verse 11. Oh, dear Galatians, I fear for you. Yeah, I may have been harsh and critical and strong and angry, but it's because I fear for you. It's because I love you. I'm afraid I labored over you in vain. You had a, had a feast in Jesus and you want to go back to the famine of the law? Look at his heart for them. Verse 12, he said, I beg you. I beg you, brethren, become as I am. I, I turned my back on the law forever. I've been set free from the law and I've been set free to God. And I became as you are. Don't you remember when I feasted on all the crawfish and lobster and oysters? And crab, don't forget the crab. I mean, what happened to that? Verse 12, please know you haven't done anything to wrong me. Verses 13 and 14, he puts them in remembrance of the intimate relationship they used to have. He says, I had a physical illness, which is brought, what brought me to you in the first place. He had been on his missionary journey in the lowlands, in the hot, humid, humid, mosquito-infested swamp. Can you relate? And so becoming sick, he had to move to the cooler air of highlands. And apparently he was not a pretty sight. He says so. Most scholars, many scholars anyway, believe he had a form of malaria. And in those, in the ancient world, it would put forth this thick, mucusy, pussy, you want me to continue? Drainage that, that coming out of your eyes. Yuck. Janet, take care of this child, please. He said, but you didn't despise me or loathe me. You know, that's what the ancient world did with a lot of physical illness. The ancient world thought physical affliction was caused by sin, and there's a lot of stupid people today that believe the same thing. Go read John chapter 9. And when they saw physical affliction, they would scream, unclean, unclean, and they would run away from them. And some of them would even spin on them, which is what the word loathe means. Can you imagine those people with physical affliction in those days and how they felt about themselves? But you didn't do that, verse 14. You received me as an angel. You looked beyond my physical affliction and, and you received me as Christ himself. I'm in a glorious position here. I, I know what that's like. Janet received me as an angel. She says, I'm always up in the air harping about something. Paul says, where's that sense of blessing you had for me and from me? You would have plucked your eyes out and given them to me. Maybe that's confirmation of what scholars think about the malaria. Maybe he's saying, you know what? You would have given me your most precious body part. If I become your enemy because I told you the truth, that's what friends do. Look at verse 17. They, those religionists, the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you. You might want to circle that word. This is, a, this is huge. It means to court someone. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be courted. It's a wonderful thing to have people spend time with you, treat you with value and significance. It's a wonderful thing for people to compliment you and praise you and listen to you intently, to give gifts to you, to really make you feel good about yourself and to affirm to your heart that you matter. It's a wonderful thing. We've got to be careful. There are manipulating charmers out there who court you only so they can use you for, your own self, for their own selfish purposes. 
religionists and legalists and Judaizers are not your friend, Paul says. My goodness, my friends, I've had to say that so many times over the years in the counseling arena as I've heard people share their story. That man is not your friend, young lady. That, that woman is not your friend, young man. Look what Paul says. These religionists want to shut you out in order that you will seek them. They're only seeking you so that you will seek them. They're liars and they're manipulators and they're users and they only want what they can get out of you. And they'll tell you anything to get it. They want to build a following for themselves. That's all they're concerned about. They're not concerned about you. And to see this happening, my friends, is tearing Paul's heart apart. Look at verse 19. Look at the change in tone. My little children. He's appealing to them as a mama whose heart is broken because she sees her children's waywardness. It's so sad, but I bet there's a lot of mamas in here that can relate really well. Look at the language, the word picture he presents. It's like I'm having to go through labor again with you. Oh my goodness. He said, what I'm having to do with you right now is unnatural. Mamas, can you imagine giving birth to the same child twice? It was bad enough the first time, was it not? And this child's going to demand that you do it again? Who wants to do that? Paul says, I'm already doing it. That's how much I love you. I am laboring to birth you again. And the idea is I'm not going to stop laboring to birth you again until Jesus is formed in you. Morphe. A word that has nothing to do with externals, but only with essential internal reality. I'm not interested in modifying your behavior through conformity. That's what the law does. I want your heart. I want Jesus so fully established in your heart that there's no room for anything else. I want Jesus so firmly established in your your heart that the fullness of his life not only fills you to capacity, but has to explode out of you. You know... As I meditated on this incredible passage, I thought if I could summarize what Galatians is all about, I would state it in two ways. From 3 John. John said this, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. But you know, there's a flip side to that. I have no greater sorrow than to know that my children walk in lies. My friends, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit has opened your heart today to see the glory of what God offers you in the finished work of Jesus. I pray that you would embrace your standing in the family of God. You're no longer a little kid, you're an adult with all the rights and privileges of adulthood. You have complete access to your inheritance. Complete access to God. I pray that you would no longer function in your life as a child. 
That you would be forever out from under the guardianship of the law. So that you could live in the fullness of your inheritance and live free in him. I pray today that the language the Holy Spirit chose stuns you. That he literally shrieks and screams and exclaims in wonder into your heart the incredible glory of the living, sovereign creator, God, holy, omnipotent, is your papa. And I pray that you have the only proper response to that. That there's no other words in your vocabulary other than to shriek and cry out in wonder and exclaim back to him that you believe it. And in worship, say, Papa. My friend Steve Pettit says only stunned people really worship God. If you have been stunned today, I would invite you to stand right now and sing Abba, Papa, because there's no other words available.
understand anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection Why should I gain from His reward? paid my ransom His wounds have paid my ransom You know, I had this little plan come into my mind this week and talked to Jesse about doing that song at the end because it fits so well. And then I was going to step up here and call for a thunderous applause, but I can't do it. The words, he made a wretch his treasure. What can I answer? Dennis Jernigan wrote a song years ago called Devastated by Your Love. That's where I'm at. <laughs> And devastated people don't have words and they don't have a clap. They're just too stunned to do anything. Go live, my friends, in the glory of who God has made you and stand confidently against the enemy. Stand securely against religion and its call to join them. And experience your inheritance, which is God himself in you. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back again next Tuesday as we continue Pastor Frank's series on Galatians. But don't forget, again this Friday, we'll be sharing our next edition of Conversations in Grace with Jesse and Pastor Tim. We hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you are, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you Friday.